This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Long-term care advocates find it ironic that Premier Doug Ford promised earlier this month to crack down on big box stores breaking COVID-19-related rules. I'm going to come down on them like an 800-pound gorilla. If they aren't aren't following the protocols, they aren't following the guidelines. And then did so in a matter of days, sending in Ministry of Labor inspectors to some 240 big box stores and finding more than 30 percent were noncompliant. This move appears to be in stark contrast to what happens when nursing homes in this province are in violation as COVID-19 outbreaks continued to devastate about 40 percent of long-term care homes. Inspectors' reports have been ignored, and staff in the homes themselves complain that when they really need urgent assistance, it takes too long because of the bureaucracy. This was the hot topic when the Zoomer squad got together with Libby Snymer on Monday. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. The big box is no mystery. I think, number one, it's medically a good idea to come down on them. But also, he was taking a lot of flack. Let's not forget from small businesses. Why are you letting big box stores open and not smaller retailers? So he had to show, you know, uh, some uh, muscle in that on that file. But no such similar muscle was shown. Uh, we're still we're still having the bureaucracy, you know, all the different things. This latest outbreak in Barry now in that nursing home. There's about five different agencies involved, and the ministry's announcement is we're working with our partners to stabilize. So it's again multiple people communicating and convening and committeeing. And where's where's the muscle uh, uh, on this file? Yeah, Peter, I mean, uh, you know, the other last week or so, 10 days ago, I talked to Donna Duncan, the head of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. She said, it just takes too long. It takes too long because of the bureaucracy. And we've heard that from individual doctors as well. Yeah, the the, the whole system seems to be riddled with uh, bureaucratic measures that hold up any kind of, uh, you know, uh, measures that, that would uh, affect change and, and immediate change and and David would be an expert on this but um you, you know in in one of the long term care um uh, you know the hearing that they're having the uh, the the long term care commission um one of the one of the uh, operators said they they get um you know five different directives from five different agencies every day that have to be followed and they often contradict each other and uh, it just seems uh, it, the whole system is riddled with bureaucracy. And uh, I don't know how you even begin to start. They that never, out. they never, Libby, they never created an emergency footing in the first place. Right. All the bureaucracy is fine if you're talking about maintaining the system, planning these changes, building more long-term care homes, 
increasing the, so the, the management of it as a system, as bad as it is, the management and changing of it as a system does take time. They never created an emergency structure that says, here is how we move like lightning before it goes bad and if it goes bad in spite of our efforts. There's no emergency apparatus uh, in place that anybody can discern. The minister wasn't even at the press conference where he announced the phase two uh, the, or the, the renewed emergency. Elliot was there, the minister of health, the solicitor general was there, the minister of labor was there, the minister of education was there, the minister of long-term care wasn't even on the screen. And Peter, what are you looking at for the next week? Well, in, in apropos of the Alberta opening up a bit, um, uh, Premier Horgan in B.C. is... Uh, um, publicly mulled the the possibility of um, imposing a um, you know basically shutting down borders and, and provincial borders, so not allowing anyone from outside the province to come in unless it's essential travel. So um, that'll be a big development if it, if it does happen. He's talking to his lawyers right now to see if it's even constitutional. But if that happens, um, we could see that happen all over Canada, especially around Ontario, Quebec. It already happens out east, but. Um, you know, we could see a Canada-wide uh, close down. Well, I'm assuming if it's legal for them, it's legal for us. And Bill, what are what are you thinking about and working on this well, we're, week? We're going to be watching the uh, vaccine uh, rollout. Uh, obviously, it's not uh, going well. When when are the feds going to move and uh, find some way to get more vaccines? Because it looks like. We're going to uh, run out, uh, uh, even though we're, it's been halting in terms of uh, the ability to get it into people's arms. And we also uh, want to uh, uh, advocate that they look ahead and please do some planning now. Uh, the second shot that, that people are going to have to have is always harder to convince people to do. And uh, there are a lot of other challenges, uh, vaccine hesitancy, hard-to-reach populations, uh, the weak structures we have in, in, in mental health. They could be making plans for action now to forestall those, uh, but they haven't before, and will they again? Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Here in Toronto and Peel Region, yesterday, January 23rd, marked two months in lockdown. Is it working, or at least starting to work? A question that is even more important in light of delayed and cancelled Pfizer vaccine shipments. Libby asked this question of epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at Ryerson University, Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital. But first, Fight Back was joined by Dr. Ryan Imgrund, a biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 analysis and has developed some really interesting metrics that offer insight into the main question, how are we doing? We're actually doing pretty good here in uh, Ontario right now. Um, we have seen um, a reproductive rate under one, um, and that's the number of secondary infections that are caused by one primary infection. We've seen that under one for about 10 days now. Um, and that's what you want to see if you want to see case counts go down. So it's more than just an actual plateau. I think we're actually starting to see cases go down. 
at this rate of 0.9, what it roughly means is that the number of daily cases will reduce by about 50% in the span of the next month. I think what's important to note is that we are seeing the case numbers in Ontario drop. We are going to hear in these next few days that um, we still have healthcare worries, that we're still seeing mortalities, that we're still seeing hospitalizations, but we need to really know that those are going to lag. Those are going to improve eventually. We need to keep on doing what we are doing now because it's having a positive effect. We are definitely seeing numbers drop here in Ontario. And let's bring in Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Let's start with Dr. Evans. Uh, You've been receiving patients from far away, even though uh, things in Kingston are apparently not that bad. That's right. Uh, we are taking patients here, and that's helped to uh, trying to help alleviate the uh, situation in Toronto to uh, give a chance for um, staff there to uh, deal with those uh, numbers, which continue to rise, as as uh, Ryan Imgren was uh, mentioning in the first interview. And do you feel that uh, with all of that, you're uh, in danger of, of being too full? Uh, at the moment, we're in we're in good shape, and and you know we sort of perceive it as part of our responsibility to uh, participate in the health system to help alleviate it. We would uh, expect that if we were in the same boat uh, that the hospitals in Toronto are in, that that they would be doing the same thing uh, for us if we were overcrowded. So uh, we are uh, dealing with it. We're doing, I think, a pretty good job, and uh, at the same time, trying to maintain um, as much activity as we can, uh, given the fact that uh, right here in southeastern Ontario, particularly around. Kingston, uh, we've been very um, uh, fortunate in having a fairly low community prevalence. Okay, let's bring in Dr. Sly. Do you feel that we are at a uh, very difficult point? Where are the difficult points? Uh, I'm, I'm cautiously, very cautiously optimistic, but it's certainly too soon to uh, open the champagne and say that we're over the, over the hump, over the bridge here at all. We've got everything's relying on data, and of course, as Ryan's team it gives us a, a guide map, a, a route map ahead. But remember that there's three problems with the data. One is that that you, daily figures are really not reliable at all. You need at least a seven-day average before you can begin to get an idea of where the trend. And that that, that is downturning a little bit. That looking hopeful. Secondly, of course, you only have a fraction of the real numbers, the real infections that are taking place. At least half of the of the virus-positive people show no symptoms at all. We've known that since the beginning, so we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, really. And third, of course, all the data we get, whether it's infections or hospitalizations or, or deaths, they're all delayed between two and five weeks. The infection for those things took place, and so we're always behind the... The, the real facts of what's, what's happening. Dr. Evans, what would you like to leave us with? This is going to be an unprecedented vaccine campaign that we really need to get on top of quickly. The, the numbers are, are seemingly quite staggering. But, uh, you know, I guess the optimistic message I'll leave is that we have got contracts with lots of vaccines. I'm expecting within the next month or so that we'll have approval of at least two more vaccines. So supply once that becomes a non-issue, it's a matter of the mechanics of rolling that out and getting it out to all these people 
outside of healthcare and outside of the long-term care setting. That's that's going to be the next big challenge. Dr. Gerald Evans, infectious diseases specialist at Kingston General Hospital, epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at Ryerson University, and biostatistician Dr. Ryan Imgrund. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, medical cannabis could be the solution if you have chronic pain. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Demolition of heritage buildings in Toronto's West Donlins area began about a week ago, ordered by the Ford PCs at Queen's Park. The Dominion Wheel and Foundries Company site on Eastern Avenue is being taken down despite loud objections from people in the community and staff at the city who say the site is important to the history of Toronto. There was no consultation on the process because the properties are on provincial land, so a permit is not required. The Tories say the site is contaminated, and by demolishing the buildings, it will make way for affordable housing. City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam is calling the move an act of vandalism. She joined Libby Snymer along with Anne Summers-Dosena, founder of the International Resource Centre for Performing Artists, and a board member of the Corktown Residents and Business Association. Well, of course, there is the heritage uh, of the history of the railroad special steel that was used in the foundry to make the rail, which has been acknowledged by the Smithsonian Institute, in fact. And we felt that because the IRCPA, which is, I know, a bunch of letters, but it it means the International Resource Center for Performing Artists, we have our mandate uh, to preserve the heritage of Canadian artists. We are extremely well-known internationally for our singers. And because they have such a short span for their career, they need help as soon as they get out of school. And uh, we provide resources for them. It's really conducive to having two performing venues. We would have the upper floors for the musicians We've lost venues. We have no space. People say to me, you know, you get up in the morning, you have your coffee, and you go to work. Well, we don't have any place to go to work. Okay, let's bring in Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam from Ward 13. So this was done by something called a ministerial zoning order. Um, I guess uh, you can't really fight that. No, we do have uh, very limited powers as a city when it comes to MZOs, as they're also called in abbreviated form. And uh, and those MZOs, the Ministerial Zoning Orders, were, were released uh, in October 2020, uh, which really upzoned all those lands. And, uh, and in the language of the MZO, uh, it allows the province to essentially build three tall buildings on that site. But Interestingly enough, the MZO was also entirely silent on the provision and guarantee of affordable housing, which is exactly what the province says 
uh, in their press statements and in the press conferences. The minister, as well as uh, the premier, has said this is uh, happening, the bulldozing of these local uh, heritage assets, uh, which are culturally significant to, to Canada as well, and I'll get into that. Um, but the, but that's what's happening. The MZO actually says nothing about uh, affordable housing. So if they can fit a 1,000 units of affordable housing onto this one particular parcel, uh, that's wonderful. Show us the development plans. But interestingly enough, they don't even have a development proposal. Nothing has been submitted to the city. Nothing has been offered to, to the community. Under their own provincial statutes, they must engage with the community before the demolition or alteration of any heritage asset. And in this case, they have not done so. They've actually ignored the community, even though the community has been begging for years to, to be involved with the planning process. Um, and so I would I would say that, you know, it's it's great that they're responding to the protest now that's been organized by, by the local community, and 15,000 people have now signed the petition to save the foundry buildings, but it's also very reactive, because we could have done this in a very different way, very collaborative way, and just down the street, across the street, we have the distillery district, which is an incredible collection of industrial heritage buildings that that now also is a vibrant mixed-use community, and that was done with the private sector and the city. And so the province can see that as a successful example, but they've chosen to ignore it. I don't think that we have no examples of of the city uh, being able to manage, um, you know, architectural uh, history, uh, as well as the archaeological work that needs to be done, and we can still build on top of it. Much of the city of Toronto is built on an old industrial port. So, so the fact that the province, you know, in the 21st century, is saying it's too expensive, it can't be done. Uh, I would say that it has to be done. We have to, as government, lead the way on these very important civic-minded conversations. And if the province doesn't care about their own heritage or planning policies, then why should any other developer or any other municipality care? City Councilor Kristen Wong-Tam and Anne Summers-Docena, founder of the International Resource Center for Performing Artists and a board member of the Corktown Residents and Business Association. Thursday, the day after this conversation, a court injunction was filed to stop the provincial demolition of the historic foundry buildings on Eastern Avenue. Councillor Wong Tam explained that going to court is the fastest way to stop the demolition. And there's not enough time to call a special council meeting because the demolition crew, she says, is moving too fast. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Turning now to your health and chronic pain in particular. It's a devastating condition that ruins quality of life for tens of thousands of people, and especially now in winter under lockdown when people are moving less. Medical cannabis may be the answer for this and many other conditions. Dr. Daniel Schechter is Associate Director of Clinical Education at Sante Cannabis, one of Canada's leading clinical and research organizations. He joined Libby on Thursday. One of the main things that we advocate for, for people who have chronic pain, uh, along with medications, is physical activity. It's important to keep the joints moving in order to prevent them from seizing up. It's the same reason why we have to start our car every couple days to prevent everything from seizing up. And you can imagine when things seize up, it's more painful. Uh, it takes a while to get going. 
so it's really important to maintain that physical activity. In addition, uh, changes in weather often affect various people's arthritis, and you can get flare-ups of arthritis. And furthermore, during the holiday season, we tend to eat food that we might not indulge in as much, so lots of sugars, uh, white flour, and all of that can also lead to inflammation, which can cause worsening pain. So when we take all this together, we see that in winter, we often have an increase in chronic pain. And now that we're in lockdown and moving even less, we see that even more. Uh, so it's kind of like a vicious cycle. There's more pain and the pain kind of stops you from exercising or moving and that causes more pain. That's exactly right. And that's why we are trying to encourage everyone to maintain some type of physical activity regime while at home and self-isolating and in lockdown. And that could include going out for walks. It could include just going up and down the stairs or the hallway in your house. If you have some exercise equipment, that would be great. Uh, But as we know, chronic pain is not just managed by exercise. Uh, we can we often also need medications, and one of the medications many people ask about is medical cannabis. Okay, tell me about that because uh, it's often you know touted as as it can it can replace opioids, which are extremely dangerous. That's right. So when we talk about management of chronic pain, we have many different options from Tylenol and Advil uh, to anti-inflammatory medications to opioids, which, as you had mentioned, have their own inherent dangers, as well as medical cannabis. And what's interesting is about five years ago, there was a very important study that showed that while we have been prescribing opioids for chronic pain uh, for quite some time, the science shows that there is really no uh, difference between opioids and other medications such as Tylenol, Advil, or even medical cannabis. So these other options are just as effective as opioids and a lot safer. Anything that is being used to treat your chronic pain, if uh, you are using it to treat chronic pain, you should definitely be speaking with your doctor about it in order to get the right recommendations to make sure that you're using uh, the right medication as well as the right dose. While Tylenol is usually a very safe, Uh, in doses of under 3 grams a day, people who use it in higher quantities might put their liver at risk. Uh, And for other medications like Advil that you can get over the counter, um, if you have other underlying disease conditions such as high blood pressure or a propensity for bleeding, then Advil or other anti-inflammatories might not be the right medication for you. And You know, because uh, people who are uh, over the age of 60 often have uh, other medical conditions, they're on other medications, it's important to talk to your doctor about what medication might be best for you. And when it comes to medical cannabis, one of the nice things about medical cannabis is that it is very safe to combine with just about any other medication. 
Dr. Daniel Schechter, Associate Director of Clinical Education at Sante Cannabis, one of Canada's leading clinical and research organizations. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joy in Markham, who phoned on Blue Monday to offer her best advice to stay positive. Yes, the pandemic has taken a great toll on everyone, both mentally, physically, and all of the above. But my suggestion is, which is working for me, I live alone. I don't, I'm not in a relationship. So, yeah, that can be a, a stress factor. Um, but my uh, advice is um, I play uh, my radio 24-7, which is off of my bedroom. But um, I would definitely recommend that people tune into music. You can learn dance steps if you like to dance, you know, and I'm happy. I'm so glad that I'm able to rise up every day and to celebrate the day and keep moving. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.